So that's 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verses 1 to 25. And I'm starting at verse 1. Follow the way of love and eagerly desire gifts of the Spirit, especially prophecy. For anyone who speaks in a tongue does not speak to people, but to God. Indeed, no one understands them, and they utter mysteries by the Spirit. But the one who prophesies speaks to people for their strengthening, encouraging, and comfort. Anyone who speaks in a tongue edifies themselves, but the one who prophesies edifies the church. I would like every one of you to speak in tongues, but even more to prophesy. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues, unless someone interprets so that the church may be edified. Now, brothers and sisters, if I come to you and speak in tongues, what good will I be to you unless I bring to you some revelation or knowledge or, pro or prophecy or word of instruction? Even in the case of lifeless things that make sounds, such as a pipe or the harp. How will anyone know what tune is being played unless there's a distinction in the notes? Again, if the trumpet does not sound a clear call, who will get ready for battle? So it is with you. Unless you speak intelligible words with your tongue, how will anyone know what you are saying? You will just be speaking into air. Undoubtedly, there are all sorts of languages in the world, yet none of them is without meaning. If then I do not grasp the meaning of what someone is saying, I'm a foreigner to the speaker, and the speaker is a foreigner to me. So it is with you. Since you are eager for gifts of the Spirit, try to excel in those that build up the church. For this reason, the one who speaks in a tongue should pray that they may interpret what they say. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. So what shall I do? I will pray with my spirit, but I will also pray with my understanding. I will sing with my spirit, but I will also sing with my understanding. Otherwise, when you are praising God in the spirit, how can someone else who is now put in the position of an inquirer say amen to your thanksgiving since they do not know what you're saying? You are giving thanks well enough, but no one else is edified. I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you, but in the church, I would rather speak five intelligible words to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. Brothers and sisters, stop thinking like children. In regards to evil, be infants, but in your thinking, be adults. In the law, it's written, with other tongues and through the lips of foreigners, I will speak to this people, but even then they will not listen to me, says the Lord. Tongues, then, are a sign not for believers, but for unbelievers. 
And prophecy, however, is not for unbelievers, but for believers. So if the whole church comes together and everyone speaks in tongues and inquirers or unbelievers come in, will they not say that you are out of your mind? But if an unbeliever or an inquirer comes in while everyone is prophesying, they are convicted of sin and are brought under judgment by all as the secrets of their hearts are laid bare. So they will fall down and worship God, exclaiming, God is really among you. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, everyone. My name's Robin, if you haven't met me before. We're gonna think about those verses that Anita read, but let's start big. Why are we here? Maybe that's the question you were asking yourself anyway. But seriously, why are we here? Why have we gathered this morning? Why have we got out of bed? Why have we made our way here? That's the thing Paul is talking about, the Apostle Paul in this chapter. He's talking about, when, he's talking about when the church gathers. He's talking about when the church gets together because the church in the Bible is not a building, as beautiful as church buildings are. The church in the Bible is the people. It's all of you. And it's usual and normal for churches to gather, for the people to get together. But why? What's the benefit? Why do you come? Is it for the friendship? Is it for the personal prayer and worship? Is it for time with God? What would the members of the Corinthian church 2,000 years ago have said if you asked them Maybe as they're making their way into their building, or maybe it was a house, and you ask them, why are you here this morning? You'd have got a whole range of different answers, I'm sure, but some of them, if they were being completely honest, would have said, I'm here to show my gifts. I'm here to show my gifts. We saw last week, didn't we, that the church in Corinth had become a little bit like a talent show, like Corinth's got talent. People wanted to display their talents, their gifts, especially the gifts that looked spiritual. It was about them. They wanted the spotlight. They came to church because it gave them approval. It gave them an ego boost. But Paul showed them, didn't he, in chapter, 20, in chapter 13, that that's not a good way to think about church because that's not loving. The thing that should motivate us as we meet together is love, particularly the love that builds up. That kind of love, as we saw in chapter 13, is vital. It defeats that desire to be better than one another. Love helps us build each other up. So church is less of a talent show and more of a building project. Now, I appreciate those two words are stressful for some people right now. What I mean is that we're here to build something. We're here to build up the community. We're here to build up our faith. We're here to build up our relationships with God and with one another. We're here to build, in other words, the church of which we are each individually a part. So I'm here to lovingly build up the church of which I am a part. 
if we get that, if we get that idea, if we have that context, then the things Paul says today in this passage in chapter 14, although it may sound a bit strange, will actually make a whole lot more sense. So let's dive in. Open up uh, your Bibles if you've closed them. And we're going to look at that chapter, 1 Corinthians chapter 14. And let's read verse 1. This really is Paul's summary for the whole section, I think. And he says, Follow the way of love and eagerly desire gifts of the Spirit, especially prophecy. So remember, the Corinthians, their attitude to spiritual gifts was competition. Paul told them off for that back in chapter 13 and said, follow the way of love instead. Once love is the priority for the gathering, well, then we have the foundation for desiring the spiritual gifts rightly. What does it mean to earnestly desire gifts of the Spirit? Well, the first thing to say is that anyone and everyone who trusts in Jesus already has the Holy Spirit living in them. It doesn't come and go. It's with you always. Paul was clear on that in chapter 12. But he also said in chapter 12 that at certain times there are manifestations of the Spirit given to individuals for the common good. And he listed some of those manifestations or gifts back in chapter 12. And they included uh, the gift of prophecy, and the gift of speaking in different tongues or languages that could be translated. And those are the two gifts that he really focuses on in this chapter. Paul's opening point in the first few verses, so kind of verses one to five, is that when the church gathers, prophecy is greater than languages. So he's contrasting these two gifts, okay, the gift of prophecy and the gift of tongues or languages. These were different manifestations of God the Holy Spirit and the church in Corinth were seeing them and experiencing them. But what were they? What did they look like? Well, actually, these passages in 1 Corinthians are the most the New Testament gives us of what these gifts looked like. Let's have a look at verses two and three. And Paul says, for anyone who speaks in a tongue or language does not speak to people but to God. Indeed, no one understands them. They are to mysteries by the Spirit. But the one who prophesies speaks to people for their strengthening, encouraging, and comfort. So we read there that both of these gifts, the prophecies, the tongues, they're both speaking gifts. But they're for speaking in different directions. So verse 3 says, the one who prophesies speaks to people. But verse two says something different. It says anyone who speaks in a tongue does not speak to people, but speaks to God. So therefore speaking in different directions. And therefore speaking for different purposes. Did you hear that? And it says that in verse four as well. Anyone who speaks in a tongue edifies themselves, but the one who prophesies edifies the church. That word edifies, it means build up like the building project to help someone grow as a follower of Jesus. Anyone who speaks in a tongue speaks to God to build themselves up 
But anyone who, who speaks, as a, or speaks in, in prophetic words speaks to the church to build them up. So different directions of speaking and for different purposes. And that's our basic framework for understanding these two gifts. Except to say that this gift of tongues or languages seems to involve a special language, a language you haven't learnt and others can't understand. Paul said no one understands what they're saying. It's mysteries. And what about prophecy? Well, Paul seems to see prophecy as special in some way. It's a bit different to just teaching because teaching is a different gift, Paul says. Back in chapter 13, Paul said prophecy is connected to understanding or seeing. And later in chapter 14, he'll describe it like having a revelation, something that could happen really quickly. So I'll define prophecy for now as speaking to people with special understanding and languages as speaking to God with special language. Just sticking with prophecy for a moment as a little side, what is this special understanding about? Well, it's not 100% clear, but I would think the most likely suggestion is that it's understanding about God and his relationship with us. That's what the prophets in the Bible are interested in. It's what Paul is interested in. And it's probably about some special understanding of the Bible's message, and particularly the apostles' message. Paul gives two lists in the Bible of people that God gives the church. And in both cases, in 1 Corinthians and in Ephesians, he says God gives first the apostles and second the prophets. And I think his point is these people with this gift of prophecy, they build on the foundation that the apostles, those 12, laid down. So the prophets that come after Jesus, they're giving understanding back onto that message of the apostles. So you can't claim to be a prophet and change what Peter, John, or even Paul was saying as recorded in scripture. And this kind of prophecy can be wrong because Paul says here and in another letter that they should be tested, they should be weighed to see if they're right or not. It's not pure infallible revelation like God's message to Isaiah or Amos or Micah or those prophets who are recorded in scripture. So if someone can share with the gathered church a particularly helpful understanding or insight into the message of Jesus, I think that person could be a prophet in this sense. Now, some of you might be wondering, what about foretelling? What about giving specific details of things to come? Or what about the secrets of people's lives? Can you have powers to see those things? Maybe, maybe. We do see that in the book of Acts. I think we could see that today if, and only if, it builds up the church. Remember, that's what the gifts are for. It's not to make people impressed at you. In fact, that's the very thing it should not do. And again, it's not a perfect infallible sign. Even if the thing does happen, it's not proof that that person is from God or speaking from God. Other spiritual powers could do that too.
Okay, so that's, uh, that's prophecy and tongues defined as much as I can. We'll park that for a moment and we'll come back to Paul's argument. He says that both of these gifts are good. They're good. I think that's what he means in verse five. He says, I would like every one of you to speak in tongues, but I'd rather have you prophesy. So both are good, but there is a preference. When the church gathers like this, prophecy is better or greater, he says. This is because prophecy builds up or edifies the church. Praying in another language, that could as well, but only if it was interpreted so that people can understand. When the church gathers, prophecy is better than languages, or perhaps more accurately, better than uninterpreted languages. And that's because only understandable words build up the church. Only understandable words can build up the church. This is the point I think Paul is making in verse six. Just have a look at verse six. He says, now brothers and sisters, if I come to you and speak in tongues, what good will I be to you? Unless I bring to you some revelation or knowledge or prophecy or word of instruction. See, Paul compares tongues, which no one can understand, remember verse two, with all these other things, like including prophecy, which are understandable. So there's this very common religious idea, isn't there, out there, that if you are near to a special place, maybe like a pilgrimage site, or if you're close to a very special person, a very religious person, then that will build you up in your faith. Maybe if you go to one of those big conventions that they advertise on the side of buses, someone who claims to be very important, and they say, if you just be near them, your faith will be built up. Well, that's not right. Because here you've got the Apostle Paul, who's probably the greatest leader the church has ever had, apart from Jesus himself. And he says if he came to them and spoke in a tongue, it would do them no good. No good. His presence alone, as godly as he was, would do them no good. What would do them good was if he spoke to them in a message they could understand. Paul says, it's not about can you be near me, it's about can you hear me and understand me? Because only understandable words build up the church. In verses seven to eight, Paul makes the same point but uses music as an illustration. He says music and instruments, they need clarity. That's why the musicians today have got the chords and the music in front of them as they play. It's why they rehearse. They don't just play what comes into their heads at the time. If they did, no one would know what song is being played. I've been in band sessions like that and it's rubbish. Nothing gets done. No one can hear a clear tune. And so verse nine, he says, so it is with you. Unless you speak intelligible, that means understandable, words with your tongue, how will anyone know what you're saying? You'll just be speaking into the air. The church is meant to be a tight-knit body. But if people are speaking in ways I don't understand, then what happens, verse 11, 
If I do not grasp the meaning of what someone is saying, I am like a foreigner to the speaker, and the speaker a foreigner to me. Paul's saying this is in danger of dividing what should be a close-knit community into just a collection of individuals, all having their own private time with God, but ignoring one another. Only understandable words can build up the church. And that, connecting with what Richard was saying earlier, is one of the foundations and reasons for the Church of England. What good was it, said the reformers 500 years ago, if the church services are spoken in Latin when the people in the pews don't speak Latin and can't understand what you're saying? It was on that basis that they said, let's provide services in English. Let's have a church which the people can understand. Paul summarizes it again in verse 12. He says, so it is with you, since you're eager for gifts of the Spirit, try to excel in those that build up the church. Church always has the danger of becoming an individualistic event. A bit like going to the cinema. You don't go to the cinema to be next to the person that you're sat next to. If anything, you're a bit annoyed that they're there. You quite like it when there's no one else there but you. You're there to have your own private time with the film. Church can become a bit like that. I come to church for my private time with God and I'd rather no one sat around me or was near me. I don't want to have to think about them. But that's not right at all. That's not loving. That's not church. Paul says, since you want to have the spiritual experiences of these gifts, well, pursue the ones that will help others and will build one another up. Does this mean then that we should stop uh, using the gift of tongues? Should these mysterious languages be banned in the church gathering? Well, no, that's the one thing Paul says we must not do in verse 39. No, not banned, but interpreted. Verse 13, he says, for this reason, the one who speaks in a tongue should pray that they may interpret what they say. So interpreting these prayers in these mysterious languages is also a gift of the Spirit that Paul listed earlier. And it seems that even the person who prays in the special language could have the gift of interpreting it as well. Because these prayers, they come from the spirit of the Christian, like the innermost parts, rather than kind of the logical mind part. See verse 14, it's like a cry that comes from the innermost part. And Paul has no problem with that kind of deep emotional kind of prayer. But he says, if it's interpreted, well, then so much the better. Verse 15, what shall I do? I'll pray with my spirit, but I will also pray with my understanding. I will sing with my spirit, but I will also sing with my understanding. He says, have the best of both worlds. Worship in your spirit, in that innermost part of you, and with your mind, with your understanding as well. Otherwise, verse 16, when you're praising God in the spirit, how can someone else, who is now in the position of an inquirer, say amen to your thanksgiving? If we had a prayer meeting and no one understands the prayers, how can we all say amen to one another? 
is you're still giving thanks, verse 17. He says, you're giving thanks well enough, but no one else is edified. No one else is built up. Paul's not against the use of tongues. He's not against them praying in these languages. In fact, bombshell, verse 18, he does it more than any of them. Do you imagine Paul praying in mysterious languages regularly? Well, he did. He did. But when it comes to the church gathering, he makes clear, verse 19, but in the church, I would rather speak five intelligible words, Jesus loves you, follow him, than 10,000 words in a tongue. Because only understandable words build up the church. Paul changes tack slightly in his third point in verses 20 to 25. He's there, he's not talking so much about how the church relates to one another as a community. He moves on to how the church relates to outsiders. So to those not yet a part of it, those kind of looking in from the outside. And he carries on his point from before. So prophecy is better than untranslated languages because only understandable words build up the church and bring others in. So understandable words, they don't only build us up, but they also invite others in. According to verse 20, Paul seems to think they're a bit weak in this area. They haven't really given it much thought. They're a bit like children in their thinking. So Paul teaches them, and he teaches them from the Old Testament, or what he calls the law, from an unfallible, uh, infallible prophet, Isaiah. And Isaiah wrote this, and Paul quotes it. He said, with other tongues and through the lips of foreigners, I will speak to this people, but even then they will not listen to me, says the Lord. So this is back in Isaiah's day, and God was warning his people through Isaiah that because of sin, they were gonna be overrun by foreign armies. So that's the Assyrians, then the Babylonians. And he says, you're gonna hear the language of the Assyrians. You're gonna hear the language of the Babylonians as they march down your streets. But you won't get it. You won't really see what's going on. Those with understanding who had heard Isaiah's message, they'll get it, because they'll be like, oh yeah, God said this would happen. It makes sense. But just the experience of seeing the army and hearing the foreign language, well, that wouldn't do anything on its own. It wouldn't make someone turn to the Lord. So Paul uses that idea, that passage, uh, to help explain what's going on when someone comes in and sees languages and tongues going on in church. He says, verse 22, tongues then are a sign not for believers, but for unbelievers. Prophecy, however, is not for unbelievers, but for believers. So if the whole church comes together and everyone speaks in tongues and inquirers or unbelievers come in, will they not say that you are out of your mind? So it's a sign to, to onlookers when they come in and they see these different languages happening. It's a sign to them that something's a bit up. It's a sign to them that they're outside the community. A bit like in Isaiah's day, it's a sign that something wasn't right with them and God. It leaves them, if you like, on the outside, alienated, confused. But the problem, Paul says, is that it leaves them there. 
It leaves them in that place of feeling outside, of feeling confused, of feeling alienated. And so he says, something would be better, verse 24. If an unbeliever or an inquirer comes in while everyone is prophesying, well, they are convicted of sin and brought under judgment by all. As the secrets of their hearts are laid bare, so they will fall down and worship God, exclaiming, God is really among you. So Paul says, if there's prophecy going on and someone walks in, if people are giving insight into the message of the Bible, well, then people can understand. And this is the kind of understanding that doesn't just keep people outside, but welcomes them in, that calls them in. Because like us, they've sinned and wandered from God, but like us, they can accept God's grace through Jesus Christ and be welcomed in. So Paul is saying tongues alone, well, that will alienate the outsider. But prophecy, speaking the message of scripture, that will open the way in. Tongue will close the door, show people they're on the outside, prophecy will open it and beckon them in. And it seems to me that this is exactly what happened at Pentecost, which you read about in Acts. We don't have time to go over the whole story now, but for those who know it, here's just a little recap. The Holy Spirit enabled the disciples to speak in different kind of languages, in this case, human languages, and people saw it and it was a sign to them. Something was up, but all they could say to explain it was, these people are drunk. It took Peter sharing his understanding of the scriptures, if you like, Peter prophesying to the crowd that brought them to conviction of sin against Jesus and brought them to repentance to join the disciples. Tongues alone, it closes the door. Prophecy, sharing the message of Jesus, that opens the door and beckons people in. We've covered quite a lot. You may still have questions, but I hope the underlying principle is clear. The reason Paul was telling them to prioritize the gift of prophecy was because in the gathering, when the church is together, only understandable words build up the church and bring in others. And that is the loving thing to do. We're here this morning for understandable words to be built up because that's the loving thing to do. I'm at this lectern because I wanna give understandable words that will build up the church. That's what St. Anne's, it's built into St. Anne's DNA, isn't it? Straightforward Bible teaching. We wanna teach in an understandable way because that's the loving thing to do. I do it because I love you. I hope you don't think I do this to get any kind of uh, applause or to show off. No, I try and do it because it's the loving thing to do. I try and be understandable because that's the loving thing to do. And I may get that wrong, I'm sure. But that's the aim. We wanna be built together, not just in my words and the words spoken from the front, but in the words we speak to one another before the service, after the service. Words of prayer, words of encouragement, words of comfort. That's the loving thing to do. Let's keep that motivation central. And if you're eager as part of that love to experience more of the gifts of the Spirit to enable that, well then go ahead and ask. 
I would say. In fact, why don't we close in prayer now and ask God for just that? So our Father God, we thank you that you gather us together that we can be built up. We thank you that you speak to us in understandable words. We thank you that those words can build us up and we ask that we would share those words in a way that would build others up and invite others in. And dear Lord, please, if your spirit can help us in that, to build us up both when we're alone and in our spirits and especially when we're together, please, would you enable us, would you gift us as a church family with that, that we may follow the way of love and we ask it in Jesus' name.